I know a few of you, like Summer Stanley and Pete Popkiss, and uh, I look forward to meeting you uh, more today if I happen to see you. Uh, I, I come from a church where the average age is about 28 years old, and uh, so we're a younger church, and we love college students. So on the first week, uh, first weekend of every month, if you're ever in Topeka and you're hungry, come to our service. We'll feed you after, because we always make room for college students. We'd love to have you. But uh, I, as, a, as a pastor in, uh, in a church, uh, it's easy to look at significance and look at, at um, you know, how am I doing based on three things. And I realize it's not just a pastor that thinks this way. It's, it's your character, your results, and your relationships. Those three areas are key areas that you are going to kind of grid and, and kind of evaluate your life over the rest of your life. I'm 50 this year. See that? That's 50. That's what usually happens to 50-year-old men. <laughs> uh, but, but the reality of that is these things have, have, uh, have just gone throughout my life. I've constantly been thinking, how am I doing in my character what results? How have things paid off? How is our church? Is our church growing? Before I was in church, I was in, in business. How is our business growing? What's the bottom line? How are sales going? If, if you're a teacher, how are my students doing? How are those testing? You know, how is testing going to work for my class? We, we tend to use those three things. And what I want to encourage you on right now is I want to tell you that Jesus has answered the final solution in those three areas for you personally. And I've known Jesus since I was five years old. Uh, it was one of those classic family moments. It was around a table. My mom, uh, my dad was working because we had a family company. My, my mom was sharing the devotional for the family. And uh, all of a sudden, I just heard about Jesus' love for me. And how Jesus lived a perfect life for me. He died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. And then he rose again on the third day to defeat the power of sin and death in my life. And I just, at, at five years old, I just said, okay, I want Jesus. And so I trusted Jesus. And I grew up in a Christian environment. Went to church, went to a Baptist church. And when you're Baptist, you go three times a week. You go Sunday morning. And if that's not enough, Sunday night. Because if things are going to mess up midweek, you have a midweek service. And so you're always in church. And I was this church kid. And I got into college. I went to the University of Wisconsin, which is a great bastion of conservative Christian thought. <laughs> it isn't. Thank you for catching it, someone. But, um, no, it's interesting. I stood up there, and I had my sociology freshman class, and the teacher stood up and flipped off the whole class. And I'm like, whoa, this is not church anymore. And I started realizing that life was different outside of my picture, and I started asking the key question of life, of, was this the faith of my parents, or is this just something because I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I'm a Packer fan, I hate the Patriots, all those kinds of things. Is this just because of my environment or was it really because it's true? And I don't know what you do, but we've learned in church work that age 16 is the, is the age where you decide. And you may wonder why 16, because you get a pair of car keys and you get to make the decision where you plant yourself in life. If you don't like what's happening in church, you stay home and your parents stop fighting with you. They just let you do that. The next time you come back into church is 32. 
So you spend then half of your life apart from biblical teaching and a part of a church family. Well, before I made that decision to to chuck my faith, I decided to research my faith. And I decided to look at all the major religions of the world at that time. And And it was right when I entered into college. And I could sleep in. Uh, on Sunday, I could relax and just pursue my own life. I could have fun and enjoy the college experience. But instead, I just decided, before I chuck this thing, I'm, gonna ex- I'm going to examine this thing. And I started learning some stuff about God. And I started to research the Word. And I started to grow. And I, I came to the end conclusion that of, of this simple statement. It's what I want you to think about. My only hope is Jesus. See, I was a good kid. I didn't have that time in my life where I just chucked it and I went out and partied and and threw everything away. And my parents then put me up as a prayer request for the guy who was run away from the Lord and all. I was not that guy. And so hiding behind the gospel of Jesus, it was always, yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross for me, but isn't he honored to have me? I mean, I'm a good kid. And I started to think then that God owed me. He owed me good health. He owed me getting into the classes I wanted to get into. He owed me the job after college. He owed me a, an incredible wife. He owed me kids. He owed me. And, I, and it, that whole expectation thing with God started to have a turn when I started examining the biblical picture of the gospel. And the gospel is really good news, right? You may have heard that word a lot in your life, but the gospel is literally good news, but it is all preached against the backdrop of the bad news and the realities of yourself. And in the book of Romans, which I heard from Christian, you guys are going through, everything up to Romans, from Romans chapter 1 all the way to Romans 3 verse 20 is all about the bad news. Let's talk about those three areas that you even view your own life with. Let's talk about your character. The Bible says in Romans 3, verse 11, it says, There's no righteous, none is righteous, no, not one. In other words, the circle for those who have sinned is just Broad and it's expansive. It goes around this world and includes everyone. None of us measure up to the expectation of perfection from God. And you know what? You are a generation who has been encouraged far more than my generation. Your parents, uh, most of your parents, when you were little, they said, you're so beautiful, princess, or you're such a great athlete, or you're doing so great here. I'm so proud of you. You've gotten that. But there's something about your generation that struggles with something even greater than my generation, and that is shame and guilt. You are guilt and shame ridden, and you can't explain it. You just feel that. We can prop ourselves up with different things, uh, clothing, with accomplishments and results. I remember when I was in college and I propped myself up with cars. It was a Mustang GT convertible, five liter engine. It was, it had white leather interior. 
And man, this thing was hot. And it was, I was in the business school at the University of Wisconsin. It was a beautiful fall day. I was headed home on a Friday, and I had my laundry in the back, the top down, and I'm waiting after class. And it's a stop sign, and there's traffic that's just going like crazy, and I'm waiting. And as I'm waiting, all the people from my cost accounting class are walking in front of me. And there was 16 feet, I think, between one car and the next. And I had the GT convertible. And I just punched it. Problem with a Mustang is when you punch it, it just lit up the back tires. And smoke starts happening. And all of a sudden, it rockets off. And I made the spot, but immediately had to jam on my brakes. And I didn't realize this, but the whole top layer of my laundry went right off the back of the car and on right at the stop sign there. What do you do? You're at the University of Wisconsin. Your half of your laundry is laying back at the stop sign. What do you do? What do you do? You keep going. You keep going. And on Monday, on Monday, I get into my cost accounting class. And four guys stand up when I walk up in the back and just do this. Yeah. It's those areas that we prop ourselves up in that are openings for some great moments of humiliation. I think about how we prop ourselves up just on social media. We, we don't say, these are not the posts of a freshman at Sterling College. Hey, I gained the freshman 15, everyone. Look at me. No one does that. We always put our best foot forward. We don't talk about our test grades when we've done bad. We don't talk about the reasons why she broke up with you and put that on Facebook. No, we hide those things behind a persona that things aren't that bad. But yet we're we're ridden with shame and guilt. That's why we need Jesus. Because in Romans 3, verse 21, it says, but now. That's the greatest transition in the whole book of Romans. It's the hinge passage. It's where everything changes. And and it's kind of, that's who you once were. That's where you stood with God. But now. But now, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we got to keep reading there. Verse 24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, our hope with our character is the character of Jesus. All of us can compare ourselves with people around us and come out looking better. I can, but because we determine the topic. There's always something we do better than someone else around us. And in this day and age, there's so many, so many opportunities, so many options. We can be, I can, if it's not the best player in this sport, this, I can be the best position in this sport. We can all find our way to measure out better than others. But God never compares you with anyone around you. He compares you with Jesus. And because of that, man, all of us are just knocked out. All of us are leveled out. But God. But God came down in the flesh. 
God lived a life. You don't just need the death of Jesus. You need the life of Jesus. He lived a perfect life for you and for me. And on our best day, when when success goes to our heads, when we think we're doing better than everyone else, and it makes us feel happy, we've got to realize, no, 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 we've got to step back from that. The righteousness of God through Jesus just humbles me a little bit. I'm only here because God has placed me here. And on our worst day, when we're beating up on ourselves and we're wondering, what in the world? How can I do that? How could someone who goes to church, how could someone who believes in Jesus, how can I keep messing up in this area? You hear the voice of God. That's why I sent Jesus. See, if you could measure up, Jesus would have never had to come. He came and he lived the life that you and I can't live. And that's the righteousness of God. Everything that God requires of us Jesus did for us. We need his life. Let's talk about results. Uh, I think about how results-driven we are. And this world, in many times, is just a pass-fail environment where did you or did you not? And uh, those who did can move to the next level and those who didn't just kind of stay. I mean, even look at kids in in select sports these days. Uh, I used to be in... In one sport, because that's all they had, I mean, soccer was in Mexico when I was young, so it wasn't, wasn't here, and, and the whole picture of that was Little League Baseball, and we played it for a while, and we stopped it. There was no select teams. Some of you have been in select all the time, but the problem, the problem sometimes with select sports is they leave a whole crowd of kids by age 10 years old saying, I can't do anything good. I'm not good. I don't perform well. And so we have sedentary kids. It's not fun anymore for them. Now, being successful in that, that's awesome. I've had kids who've, well, my oldest has been involved in varsity sports from his freshman year through his senior year for three different sports all four years. And that is awesome, and I celebrate that. But you know what? All of us, all of us fail when it comes to the results that God is looking for us or from us in our lives. And we can hide behind a whole bunch of bumper stickers that we put on when you are married and you have children. You'll put bumper stickers of, you know, model student and what college your kid goes to. And those are all awesome. But the the reality is with God, we can't measure up. The one great thing for me when I was in college that really changed things is I I realized that the major religious systems of the world basically said, what did you do? What did you do? How did you meet God halfway? Because that's the thing that God requires. You're good. uh, You're bad. God is good. Be good. And so it's that whole picture of not measuring up in performance. Well... Secondly, that's why Jesus had to come. Because the result of Jesus coming is literally what the scripture says here, if I can just read it. It says, whom God, speaking of Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation isn't a great word we use all the time, but it literally means two things. It, it means satisfying 
the payment for wrong, but it also means turning away the wrath for an offense. So not only did Jesus pay the price for our sins on the cross and the power of the cross and his work on the cross, not only does that satisfy the debt, it also turns away God's wrath for us for falling short. And so in every area of results, Jesus is our only hope. I want to share a story about this, about results. Because I'm a pastor in a church that has grown over the course of the time I've been there. It grew from about 100 people to now about 2,200 people on a weekend. And when it got to be around 1,500, I hit a wall. I hit a wall of being that pastor who no longer could remember someone's name. Of coming to the end of myself on capacity of being able to meet people's needs. Of being able to, to lead a staff that was constantly in, in conflict of raising and being the dad of three boys who were growing and engaging adolescents. And I remember something within me just started to break down. I remember um, I could fake it in an environment like this, but if you were my close friend and you said, hey, Joe, how are you doing? I would lose it. I would just start crying. And I am someone who, I'm not one of those crying kind of pastors, but I just something, and it humiliated me even more because I wasn't strong internally. And I remember there were times I would just break down with my wife, and I was in a sheer moment of weakness. What do you do? Well, I started realizing that I had started to think that I was the answer to people's problems. I started to think that if our church needed an answer for a problem in growth or a problem in staffing, um, that I would do that. I started to think if someone was unhappy, if a staff person was unhappy and was discontent, that I had to make them happy. And I started to think that I still needed to coach, coach closely my boys and not let them free. And it was overwhelming. I came to the end of myself on what my capacity to do things were. And you know what? I had never had that before in my life. Never. And some of you who have suffered with depression or anxiety issues, you know what I'm talking about? But it's sheer helplessness. And I hated being in that environment. But you know what? God took me to a place at that moment where he had to humble me and he had to show me, Joe, is Jesus going to be enough for you? Who changes hearts? Jesus does. Who redeems lives? Jesus does. Who loves your kids more than you do? Jesus does. Who's going to work in you and change and transform people? Jesus. 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 He's the only one who can do this. So why did you buy and when did you buy that lie that you're the answer to people's solutions. And I'll tell you, once I caught this, once I caught this, I started trusting people more with Jesus. It totally transformed my prayer life to where I could put people on the feet of Jesus and not think I had to solve it. And guess what? Jesus does heal. Jesus, Jesus does transform. His power is far greater than mine and yours. The answer to the results is your only hope is Jesus. 
And then let's just talk about relationships. I think there's a desire in each of us that we're known fully and loved completely. Uh, part of my aspect of ministry is doing life coaching with men. And um, uh, as I meet with these business leaders and these doctors, these lawyers, or, or whatever they are, they're at the top of their field, and, and that tends to be the key thing in their lives. As we try to look at the motive for how they're living and the relationships of their lives. And you know what? You can get great results, but you can have horrible relationships in your life. That's Hollywood. That's, in many cases, professional sports. Is great results, great paycheck, but relationship after relationship overturned votes. And you know what? It's not just for those who have success. We serve in a community in our, in our uh, area that has a 94% poverty rate. Um, there's 80% of every child born in that community uh, is born to just a single mother. And so poverty and craziness. There's one family that has 12 children in an 800-square-foot home with one mom, and she's had... She has 12 fathers represented in that home. Relationships are overturned. What's their only hope? What's my only hope in relationships? It says in this passage that God showed his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time So here's the point, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the one who's just, he's righteous, but he also, because of his love, chose to be the justifier. He's the one that we're responsible to, we're accountable to, but he also is the one who provides everything we need for a relationship with him. And since Jesus came to give and not get, to love and not judge, to save and not and not be served. It totally turns all relationships of this world upside down to move us into people who become men and women as Christ followers who can love without expectation. Of anything being returned. I remember I traveled to India one time. And I don't know if any of you have ever traveled to India. But it's very, very different than here. I traveled the town that I, I flew into is Chennai, India. And it's on the southeast um, side of the country. And it was a city that all the infrastructure was built for about 2 million people. And 14 million people live in that city. Three lanes of traffic in the United States have three cars in it. In India, three lanes of traffic, I counted them, had 14 different types of vehicles in it. I passed one motorcycle with uh, a guy riding on it, and he had his four-year-old hanging on to the handlebars, his two-year-old wedged between he and the the four-year-old, and his wife... In traditional Indian garb, riding side saddle, holding the baby. Five people on one motorcycle going 45 miles an hour right next to us. It totally blew my mind. 
and everyone is close. And we traveled, we traveled about an hour in the same city, and we arrived at a leper colony. Now, leprosy, for the most part, has been eradicated. It's been, it's been taken away. But these are an older generation of people who they didn't have that antibiotic that could relieve that. So leprosy basically deadens uh, any sensation on your extremities. And most of the women cook over an open flame. And so they would literally, with leprosy, smell their flesh burning before they could feel the sensation of heat. And it would get infected, and that's why they would lose most of their fingers and most of their toes. And I went to this church. It was built by a church here in the United States, and uh, I was going to preach at this church. I was this pastor from the United States of America, and I was coming to preach. And the place packed out, and they sat on the floor, and they stood to worship. And as they stood, this is what I saw. Raising what had, they had left of their fingers. And as I was in the back, the lights went out because they only have lights for so many hours in a day. And the pastor turned on this little LED camping light and hung it up in the corner. And they continued, nothing affected. They continued to worship. And I started realizing these people know and respond to the love of Jesus. These people that are disfigured, who could have a hundred reasons for staying put, are overflowing with worship and prayer to Jesus because Jesus is their only hope. And I had to just think through that. Is Jesus my only hope? He's not just my only hope for the get out of hell free card. He's my only hope in life. He's my only hope as a pastor. He's my only hope as a father. He's my only hope as a husband. He's my only hope as his child. That's how I'm in. That's how I stay in. It's Jesus. Can you pack? Can we all pack that one away? Because there's going to come a time, whether now in college or later, where you're going to hit a wall. Where you're going to realize, boy, a relationship that I put a lot of hope into didn't work out. Um, a performance, a game, something, a class that I put a lot of hope in didn't work out. My character was less than impressive. And you're going to have to answer that question, where's your hope? And I want to just tell you, I come back to that statement pretty much every day of my life because I never outgrow my need for the gospel. Jesus is your only hope. And when he is, it gives freedom in character because you can receive his forgiveness and you can forgive others. When Jesus is your only hope in results, you can fail and you can learn from it. When Jesus is your only hope in relationships, you can trust that he's working out something in the midst of conflict and depravity in relationships. Jesus is your only hope. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word today, which reminds us, whether it's our character, our results, or our relationships, you're our only hope. I thank you for seeing us as we really are and choosing to love us anyway. That truly makes the gospel glorious.
and your name great. It's in your name that we pray.